Well, it is a delight to be here uh, with you. I have, uh, I came to know the Lord about 15 years ago through the ministry of Campus Crusade, and since then have kind of considered myself a theological mutt. You'll get to hear some of that story today, going to Dallas Seminary for my THM and Southern for my PhD. Uh, I always joke with my Southern Baptist friends that I have so much respect for the EFCA that I hope to be EFCA when I finally grow up. Uh, so I, I genuinely, being here reminds me of the sweet brotherhood and sisterhood that is present here, which is not necessarily present everywhere. And so it's been a, just kind of a balm to my soul to get to spend some time with, with you and, and have wonderful conversations. So thank you for having me and even letting me be one of your own uh, for, for this week. Um, my topic, you shall be holy, disciples discipleship, sanctification, and catechesis. So I, uh, even as you heard in a little bit of the bio, I have kind of several vocations, dad being the most important one of those, and husband as well being one of the most important. But I also spend time preaching and as a practitioner in the local church. Would you just do me a favor since I can kind of get a sense of who's in the room? Raise your hand if you're a practitioner in some kind of role just in the local church. Is that, okay, that's the, so that's, that's probably the role we share the most. And I also spend some time as a professor. So you're gonna hear me kind of go in and out of each of those voices a little bit today. Um, the text that I'll be spending some time in, at least at the beginning, is, is Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. I don't intend to exegete the text or really exposit it, but I, I do want us to hear from God's word and God's Holy Spirit through it. We know the context as Israel is in the wilderness, they have just been liberated and set free and they're receiving the law and God is creating a holy people for himself, telling them to be set apart, much of what we just heard in our last session. And God, through his Holy Spirit, speaks these words to his people. Leviticus chapter 19, verse two. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. For I, the Lord, am holy. Down in verse seven, similar theme. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I, the Lord, for I, the Lord, am your God. Jumping all the way down to verse 26. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Leviticus 19, perhaps more than any other chapter in the Bible, shows us this biblical and critical relationship between who God is and what he is doing and calling his people to be. That they would be a people for himself, bought, purchased, and liberated, a holy nation, and that they would be holy, consecrated, set apart. So the holiness of God is intrinsically and biblically connected to the holiness of his people. Again, verse two, speak to the congregation of Israel and say to them, you should be holy. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the character of God is matched with the character of his people. Verse seven, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I, the Lord, am holy. 
This holy God creating a people for himself, a nation of slaves and now a nation of saints, a holy possession for himself. Again, verse 26, you shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples. Why? So that you would be mine. Isn't that good news this morning? That the holiness of God, the intrinsic character of the purity of his nature is mirrored and reflected in the people that he is purchasing for himself. And then the verse we haven't read yet, verse 37. And you shall observe all of my statutes, all of my rules. Do them. I am the Lord. So again, just for summarizing the chapter, the character of God is transforming, sanctifying, progressively purifying a people for himself. Again, this is a people that was once slaves, separated in Egypt, apart from this holy God, wondering if the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are real and true and reliable. Slaves who've been purchased back, redeemed, liberated, now called a nation of priests, holy priests. But you need to see that God is not just delivering them, he's remaking them. God is not just saving them, he's sanctifying them. God does not just intend to take them from Egypt, he intends to transform them into being a holy people. If we were using basic systematic theology language, we would say salvation is not just justification, but it is also sanctification. It's not just justification and sanctification, but eventually, as we just heard, glorification. That this umbrella that systematic theology provides us, or this story that God is giving us through the entire canon, is that God is purchasing a people for himself, justifying them, redeeming them, liberating them, and also now transforming them, making a holy people for himself. Why? Because God is holy. You might be wondering to yourself, okay, JT, what about the passages we just read in 1 Peter? It's good to go there too because Peter is developing this very same idea of justification and sanctification. 1 Peter 3, 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and fading, kept in heaven for you. Again, connecting God himself, this blessed one, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving us mercy, birthing us again to a new hope. Why? And that's what we just read in our last session, 1 Peter 1, 13 and 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to passions of your former ignorance, but as I who called you is holy. You also be holy in all of your conduct. Why? Because it's written, you shall be holy holy, for I am holy.
holiness of God, intrinsically connected to the holiness of the people that he has purchased, redeemed, and liberated for himself. The holy one creating a holy possession, namely a holy people. And again, that's our topic. You shall be holy. Disciples, sanctification, and catechesis. So let's just have an honest practitioner conversation. Is this what you're seeing in your church? On the ground. The emails that you have in your inbox right now. Because I could show you my email inbox. And of course God is doing beautiful things in the life of our churches. Of course people are being made holy and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We have great hope that the Holy Spirit does this work, even in the midst of our exile. But I think as we've heard in almost every session, and I don't want to assume what's going on specifically in your congregation, but normatively, and as I have hundreds of pastoral friends across the country and around the world, I think if we're just honest with ourselves, and as I hope we have an honest conversation today, we can say that many of us are deeply discouraged about that question. Fair? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Is that what we've seen the last four years, three years, two years, one year? Perhaps after years of discipleship, after faithful preaching, you too have seen longtime members leave and maybe not even know why. Maybe you have personal pain tied to this question. People that you did biblical counseling for, married, or somebody you saw get saved and go into the waters of baptism, emerging victorious with Christ over Satan, sin, and death, left your church because your stance on masks. Because you have them or you don't. Maybe somebody that you did premarital counseling for ghosted you because of what you did or didn't say about January 6th, or what you did or didn't do about social distancing. Perhaps some of your elders have given you a difficult time because of how you've handled the political climate. I'm not trying to push on a bruise for you. This is a bruise that I have also. This is is our moment, and I think we were made for it. This is our moment. Discipleship, sanctification, holiness, and catechesis. Many of us are rightly spending time thinking about what it's like for us to live and minister in a secular culture. The lecture by Dr. Truman last night was wonderful. His book that came out last year is probably the most helpful book I've read in 10 years. But it's not only important that we be thinking about how we live and minister in a secular culture, it's becoming increasingly true that many of us are ministering in increasingly secular churches. Again, we could do the the caveats. I hope you hear the, the gentleness in which I'm phrasing that. But we're realizing secularness is not something that's just out there. It's something that is increasingly creeping in here, fair? And we're seeing it in our people. We're seeing it in emails. We're seeing it in conversations. We're seeing it in our lived lives of our communities. So here's my thesis. Two parts that we'll walk through slowly. First part, we have a discipleship disease. We have a discipleship disease. It's been misdiagnosed, that's part one. We have a discipleship disease that's been misdiagnosed. I wanna help us try to diagnose that disease today. Part two, we can get healthy 
or holy again. We have a discipleship disease that's been misdiagnosed, but we can get healthy or holy again. First thing I want us to think through is this discipleship disease that I believe has been misdiagnosed. Again, I've I've walked through this a little bit already, and it's safe to say that this season has been challenging for most of us. By the way, if it looks like I'm doing the robot with my bicep, I might be, maybe the Holy Spirit's falling you know, upon us, but as he said, I tore my bicep a few weeks ago, so the bicep is just kind of dangling around here somewhere, so if it looks weird, it's because it is weird. Um, but it's safe to say that the, so I'll, again, just my personal story, uh, and you'll, you'll get to hear more of this, but just my story over the last two years, I was at my church, Storyline Church, March 8th, for my interview. They offered me the job on March 9th, pen, pending preaching in view of a call. And then the NBA, I, remember I was back at the Village Church, the NBA shut down March 12th. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh no. I had no idea what the next two years were. I thought we had a two or three months, or maybe two or three week thing on our hands. Let alone did we, and again, we've mentioned these before, politics and religion, voting in masks, racial, ten, racial tensions, attendance and di- digital worship, the people that you've been pastoring for 20 years not coming back. Where did they go? We are seeing many of the people that we thought were with us are no longer with us. Why? Because they've been lured into other, and in their mind, better visions of the good life. But all of these things that we've seen the last two years, and I've been a pastor for about 10 now, um, are really symptoms of a disease that we already had. It's not new. Evangelicalism did not become undiscipled over the last two years. We already weren't. We're watching the, the later effects, the later stage of a cancerous disease that we've had for far longer than two years. In other words, this disease that's affecting us might, might be decades long. We're just seeing symptoms over the past two years. So it matters what the disease is and how we diagnose it. Because diagnosing a disease teaches us and helps us know how to treat the disease. So another quick personal story for me. About four years ago, I was getting ready to preach at the Village Church. I was preaching on one of my favorite passages Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. After coming to know the Lord through Campus Crusade, that was the first passage I memorized. I proposed to my wife with that passage. I had a Bible with our you know, English family on it, and I put the ring at the bottom. By the way, fellas, if you're not married yet, it's just a good idea. That's for free. Um, I'm in there, and I'm, 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 di- I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of diagramming the passage and getting ready to preach it, and my wife, for the past several months, had been experiencing pain in her hip, pain that we didn't know what was. I mean, she's pretty active. We thought maybe she just kind of pulled something, maybe some kind of a bruise, internal muscle kind of tightening up, so we're massaging it and stretching it and doing all kinds of kind of mobility work, and she calls me while I'm in my office and says, JT, this pain is getting unbearable. I have to go to the doctor. I said, oh, Okay. You know, I'll meet you there. We go to the doctor. She gets a scan. The doctor comes out and says, you, you've got to go, you've got to, go uh, to, to another specialist, but yet you should go today. I'm going to send the scans there. And of course, if you've walked through a medical situation, that's a scary moment. You're not sure what's going to happen. So we drive down. We actually had about an hour. So we go to another church 
uh, that had a coffee shop in it, kind of, kind of like this one, big open foyer, and we're sitting there on leather couches. There's like a, there's, I mean, it's probably three or four times the size of this foyer, like big, everything they do in Dallas is like 17 times the size of everywhere else. So we're sitting on these couches, and it's just her and I, by ourselves. Nobody else in the foyer with us. Until this gentleman walks in, disheveled, mumbling, stuttering, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe a mental illness. Uh, if, if I were to see this guy walk in right now, I could say, you could put a million people in front of me, and I'd say, that's him. He sits down right next to me. And I would like to tell you I was sitting there praying. I wasn't. I was sitting there scrolling Twitter, just trying to disassociate myself from the current situation that we were in. And he starts looking at his phone, and he's mumbling underneath his breath, and all of a sudden, he locks eyes with me. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any affection and sympathy, make my, like he's saying it like this. And I'm wondering to myself, this is an angel, this is a super strange guy doing Bible memory navigator stuff, or this is, like, I don't know what this is. I have a PhD in systematic theology, and I'm just kind of like, okay, Lord, I receive this, right? Is this, again, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, and I, you guys all are pastors and ministers in different functions. This is not our daily experience. This is not my daily experience. So I just said, Lord, I receive this. I pray with my wife, and we, we, you know, we look up, and he's gone. Never seen the guy again. Again, this is not my daily experience. Just one of those handful of moments you can look back and be like, that was from the Lord. We go into the doctor an hour later, and he looks at my wife and I and he says, this is really bad. It's his first words out of his mouth. You have what looks like a high-grade sarcoma. You probably have three to five years to live. If you live, it'll be after chemotherapy, radiation, and the amputation of your leg, hip, and pelvis. My 33-year-old wife, mother of, at that time, my three- and one-year-old child, children, we go in for a bi- that was Friday night of Memorial Day weekend. We go in for a biopsy on that Tuesday, the first one in to confirm the diagnosis, and they do a double confirmation. The surgeon thinks it's cancer, and the other guy says, I'm not so sure. Let's, let's send it to somebody else. They send it to a doctor at Harvard named Chris, Chris Fletcher, and meanwhile, three or four weeks of, of preparing for chemotherapy treatments and radiation treatments, actually meeting with doctors that my former lead pastor, Matt Chandler, had met with five or six years previously for his cancer diagnosis. And you begin thinking to yourself, is this my story? Is this what we're going to live through? Well, I lose my wife. We're sitting in our living room one night and Chris Fletcher from Harvard calls. And he says, you've been misdiagnosed. You can imagine the elation <laughs> that we have. The, I mean, the, 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 the depression, the darkness, the fear that I had been living in for weeks, in some sense lifting, and here we are celebrating, worshiping God, and my wife is on the couch crying because of the trauma of a misdiagnosis and all that it's now going to require for her to reframe her mind around life, not death, reframe her mind around being the mother of children, not losing, watching her children walk down the aisle or marry a bride walking down the aisle, graduate from high school, and she was processing this so differently than we were. I share that story to remind us of the importance of not misdiagnosing our discipleship disease. If we misdiagnose our disease, we will mistreat it and not make it better, but make it worse. 
Because if you mistreat a disease, you don't cure it, you perhaps create others. What if we had given my wife chemotherapy and radiation and pursued surgery? She would have been healthier, she would have been sicker. So what is our disease? For far too long, evangelicalism has been misdiagnosing our disease. We've been told and perhaps thought, we are too intellectual. Friends, there's nobody in the world who, when the evangelicals walk in, says they're the smart ones. <laughs> we say that to ourselves a lot. We're too serious. We ask too much from our people. We apologize when we ask for real discipleship from our churches. We're too committed. We're asking too much. Therefore, let's make our, 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 our feel more relevant, savvy, accommodating, shallow, accessible, sensitive friends. Our disease is not that we are too deep, but far too shallow. Our disease is that we have exchanged catechism for community. We've exchanged confessionalism for conversationalism. Our disease is that we've exchanged the presence of God for fading philosophies of ministry. Our disease is that there is no room for catechism in our discipleship. And don't hear me the wrong way, community and conversation are indispensable in the life of every church. But without catechism, community and conversation cease to be distinctively Christian. As a new Christian 15 years ago, I learned that one of the primary instincts of evangelicalism is to lower the bar, not raise it. But friends, here, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. I believe this with the core of my being. The future of discipleship is more Bible, not less. More catechism, not less. More theology, not less. More moral formation, not less. More of the Spirit's presence with us, not less. More prayer, not less. More gospel, not less. And since we lower the bar, and since we've been lowering the bar for decades, our people are being discipled into other visions of the good life. We often think our people don't want to do hard things. Maybe you've felt this instinct in your ministry before. You've thought to yourself, ah, you know, think of a family. They've got basketball and then baseball and then ballet, and he's got a 60-hour-a-week job, and how much can we really ask Guys, ladies, our people are willing to do CrossFit and drink kale smoothies. They'll come to a Bible study. <laughs> Everybody else is willing to ask people to do hard things, but us. The reason they don't want to jump, jump over your low bar is it's not worth jumping over. They don't think you want them to jump over it. They'll go give their life to other hard things to other meaningful things, things that are gonna invite them into stories and invite them into meaning and invite them into community. Meanwhile, we say, would you please maybe think about coming to a two-week Bible study on Genesis? That'll hit some of you on the way out. So, we need to tell them, consecrate yourselves. Therefore, be holy. I, the Lord, am holy. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you would be mine. We need to tell them that, but we also need to develop a catechetical approach to ministry that shows them how to do it. We need to tell them that, and we also need to develop a catechetical approach to ministry. 
So we have this discipleship disease, but we've misdiagnosed it. Our problem is not that we are too deep, but far too shallow. But we can get healthy and holy again. So here's how I want to approach the remaining 35, 40 minutes of my time with you before we have some Q&A. And I actually hope that this part becomes intensely practical for you. As we think about what does a catechetical approach to discipleship look like? What does it look like on the ground for you to take some of these ideas and begin implementing them in the life of your church, in the life of your ministry, or the lane of, of ministry that you have responsibility over? And so if we're talking about a, catech- a catechetical approach to discipleship, what better way for us to do that than by framing it in questions? Questions that I want you to ask, actually ask. Uh, I'm also framing it a little bit um, as the questions that we typically ask versus the better question that I want to invite us to ask. Question number one, don't, don't write this down as the right question. Again, there's the, bad, there's the fine question, the better one. The, the, the question we normally ask, number one, is where can we make disciples? Where can we make disciples? Like this is the question of location. Where does discipleship happen? How do we become holy? The better question is this, where must we make disciples? The contrast, where can we make disciples? To the better question, where must we make disciples? The second question assumes that location, place, contextuality, people, relationships matter. So I wanna tell you a little bit about my story, which will help you, you know, so much of theology and ministry comes from our own biographies and stories. So I think it'll help you understand why this question matters a lot to me. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. I actually grew up in a post-Christian secular home. Uh, the kind of home that we've been thinking about and the kind of life, like when people make uh, felt board jokes, I'm like, I've no, I don't get it. Right, that's my background. Uh, when, when, like the first Bible study I went to, it was Campus Crusade for Christ. I was, I was a freshman at Colorado State University, and my roommate named Hunter Greeno, which is a strange name. If your last name's Greeno, you don't name your kid Hunter, but that's another conversation. <laughs> Great guy, committed believer, started inviting me to a campus crusade or crew Bible study. And he said, it's in the basement of the men's dorm. And I was like, no way. <laughs> you know, it was in the laundry room, like no windows, laundry room, Bible study. And I'm like, I'm not going to that. I don't care. I have a vision of the good life. After 13 or 14 asks just to get this guy off my back, I say, fine, I'll go, I'll go to your Bible study. I sit down, there's eight or nine other men there, young college students, and the Bible study leader, a sophomore named Nate Miller, says, um, open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And I said, okay. I had a teen study Bible with a skate, remember those teen, with a skateboarder flying off of it? <laughs> That's a cool Bible. Um, I couldn't find Jonah, guys. I couldn't find it. I was doing the thumb through thing, and it was like, Jonah's a small book. I didn't know that at the time. I just kept landing on Psalms. <laughs> and I began thinking to myself, I'm in a cult. What have I done? You know, are they going to start bringing out like, like jello shots, like some crazy cult community right now? And the Bible study leader named Nate Miller, a sophomore, reaches over, thumbs. And also, by the way, then you can't go to the table of contents because then you're outed. <laughs> you know, 
If you don't know, it's not on page 798, do you really love the Lord? And so one of the reasons I'm telling you the story, this is where the people we're trying to reach are. That's where they are. So Nate opens the Bible for me, and for the first time in Jonah 2, I hear that God is gracious to sinners. Blows my mind. A totally foreign concept, that there would be a holy God who's creating a holy people for himself. Next morning, Nate invites me to go to uh, lunch with him in the student center at campus or at the Colorado State. He buys me a Whopper, and he hands me the four spiritual laws, and he says, I'm supposed to read this with you. <laughs> and in the most uncompelling presentation of the gospel in the history of Christianity, God saved me. Yeah, it's just that God saves people. Which goes to show our methods don't save people, God does. We share the gospel indiscriminately, believing that he is making dead people alive and making alive people holy. So I come to know the Lord, and I spend the next three or four years just kind of meandering my way through Christianity, learning. I, I asked one of my friends, just, hey, I want to learn more about the Bible and, he, and, and, and theology. And he went and got two books from the Mardell Christian Bookstore, two very different books. He said, here's Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and, and here's a Max Lucado in his grip of grace. And I was like, I don't even know the difference between these things, but I'll read them. That's where I was. And that's where our people are. By the end of my time at Crew, my parents, who were not Christians at the time, praise the Lord, God has saved them. Um, I, felt, I fell in love with God. I fell in love with ministry and wanting to do ministry. Uh, I've told my parents when I was graduating from college, I spent the last four years majoring in Crew and minoring in college. After that, I went to my pastor, who actually, ironically enough, emailed me just yesterday. I haven't heard from him in 15 years. He's ending his ministry. Um, just a, a nice note from a pastor. And I went to him at the time, wonderful guy. Church of about 200 people. I, you know, I met my wife and we're attending his church and trying to think about what's after college for us. And I went to him. And guys, I, I need to remind you, I didn't know what seminary was. I, didn't, I, I knew Campus Crusade. And I knew that there were some local churches in Fort Collins. That's all I knew. And thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go be a part of crew. I'm just going to do campus ministry. I love this. And I went to him and I said, I, I want to grow. The question we're talking about today. I want to be transformed. I want to learn. I want to take the next step. And you know what he said to me? He said, oh, JT, that's fantastic. You want to grow? I'm so glad that you want to grow. If you want to grow, you need to go to seminary. And I said, what is seminary? He's like, oh, that's the place where Christians go to grow. It's where you can learn the Bible. It's where you can, can like learn the original languages and learn theology. I'm like, this place sounds incredible. But why are we not doing that in the church? Why, why can't, aren't you a pastor? And again, this was not me asking, I wasn't trying to ask offensive questions. This is a man I deeply love and had, have admired his ministry. But, but he had bought into a system that location of discipleship doesn't matter. Again, I love crew. I spent the next 10 years at two different seminaries, getting a THM and eventually a PhD. And in those classrooms, I was transformed. 
I would leave my seminary classroom thinking to myself, why in the world are we not giving this to people? Why in the world did I have to move my family across the country twice and spend $100,000 or so of my own mo- of money I didn't have? <laughs> my, I mean, my, why is my wife in a Bible study called the Sugar Mamas, because she has a job and I don't, just so I can learn the Bible? Is this the right system? <laughs> this is what we've created. And again, hear me. I loved that 10 years. I praise God for ministries like Crew and others. Praise God for adult Bible study fellowships. I praise God for the two seminaries I went to and many others. I work at two of them still. So this is not a matter of either or, but a a both and. But why have we created a situation where most of us have to leave the church in order to lead in the church? Just out of another show of hands, and again, we're not making moral judgments here, but it's just a a good stat. If you were to say most of my most deep formation, discipleship, knowledge of scripture, knowledge of theology, raise your hand if for you that happened outside of the church primarily. That's what happened. Raise your hand if it was inside the church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I have a seminary professor who's a good friend of mine. He said, JT, seminary has even transformed over the last 20 or 30 years because how students are coming to us has transformed. They used to come deeply catechized. Now they come simply for discipleship. And our job is to catechize them before we can make them pastors, ministers, or missionaries. So the first question that we're looking at is this question of where must discipleship happen, and I'm making the case, it must. Our call is to catechize, teach, train, primarily in the context of the local church. We need to readopt an approach to discipleship and catechism that places your local church, my local church, at the very center of this call to consecrate yourselves. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you. The the local church, God's universal and local church is this temple, this tabernacling presence of God with his people. Guys, that's the best thing going on the planet. That God is with his church, with them, tabernacling them. Also, I'll say this. So so we have the presence of God, but we're also the people of God. And I want to contrast this with my seminary experience. So my seminary experience, both at Dallas and Southern, again, fantastic experiences. I'll also say, I know there's lots of Trinity grads in the room. I did an independent study with Kevin Van Hooser, and he was a dissertation reader. So I'm kind of in a little bit, right? And I wore blue today. (laughs) That being said, I believe we can do qualitatively better training in the church. Not as technical, not as, not as maybe profound, but deeply personal. Because people matter. So when I would go to seminary, some of my best friends in the world I met in seminary classes. I lived in seminary housing at Dallas Seminary. But ultimately at seminary, who are you there for? Yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but you're going to your Greek class or your Hebrew class or your church history class, your systematic theology class, in order to learn something. Do you really care that much what the person's grade is next to you? I mean, maybe a little bit, but it doesn't really affect you. It's not gonna impact your ministry and impact your life. If you're in a church with an undiscipled person, it deeply affects you. In the context of the local church, when we do catechism, we're not doing individual catechism, we're doing communal and corporate catechism because the life of your church depends not just on you being made holy, but the plural, you being made holy. Growing together, so an example of that, at the Village Church I had the privilege of starting the Village Church Institute. One of those environments, which I'll talk about more in depth later, we called it the training program. It was a 36-week in-depth introduction to biblical theology, systematic theology, and spiritual formation. Again, I'll, I'll talk more about that later, but it was intense. It was, we got to, we got to uh, plug Schaefer yesterday. I'll plug Bavink today. Uh, we just read lots of Bavink. <laughs> we, read, we read Irenaeus and Calvin. We read Luther and Edwards. They have to tell me the story of the Bible in 20 minutes. They have to do doctrinal statements. They have to share the gospel at the end and work on evangelism. I'm thinking to myself, this is gonna be 15 people. This is like a, in the backyard around a fireplace. We had 459 people apply the first year without a curriculum developed. As a teacher, that does not feel good. <laughs> you know, like we have definitely overpromised and underdelivered here. But we have people coming, and it was the widest kind of person you can imagine. There was the 83-year-old grandmother all the way down to the Dallas Seminary THM graduate, all involved in this class, or the, the mom of five kids who says, finally, here in my church, I have access. You've democratized theological education. I want this, I've wanted this for my whole life. But the challenge is, in a seminary class, if you have the 83-year-old grandfather or the 45-year-old mother of five, and the Dallas Seminary graduate who's exegeting and diagramming sentences, it's a very different kind of learning environment. How do you teach both of these people in a seminary class? Because in a seminary class, you might be going through the Gospel of John and, and the 94-year-old grandfather might be thinking to himself, can you remind me who wrote the Gospel of John? While the Dallas Seminary student or the Trinity Evangelical student might be thinking to themselves, can you tell me more about monogamous? And what if that grandfather raises his hand and says, can, can you help me again? What does logos mean? What would the instinct of the elite student be perhaps in a seminary course? I'm paying for this. I left my job to be here right now. Can't we, can't we get a little bit deeper? But in the church, it's praise the Lord. The Lord is consecrating the people for himself. The growth of that brother or sister matters as much as my growth. And the opposite is true. When that student asks, how many angels are on the head of that needle? The older brother or sister, or the, the less mature, perhaps, whatever language you want to use, says, praise the Lord, maybe I'll grow like that someday. Because in the context of the church, in the location of the church, it's not just that we have the presence of God with us, it's that we're with the people of God, that we're learning with each other, and that each other's learning matters. And finally, I won't spend a lot of time on this one, place. It's where I moved from the village to, to Arvada, Colorado, and the way I'm teaching these things 
has changed. And in the midst of, of uh, digitalized learning and digitized uh, both churches and seminaries, context matters, place matters. The way we're talking about different conversations matters. And local churches, embassies of Jesus across the world should contextualize their catechism for their place. And only local churches can do it. So question number one, where must we make disciples? The local church. It's time for churches to reassert themselves as the primary location of discipleship and catechism. Question number two, again, question we typically ask first and the question I want to invite us to ask second. Second catechism question. The question we tend to ask is, are people listening to us? Like, are they showing up? Are they coming to our sermon? How many views did we have online? Again, it's not a bad question. But it assumes that just because people are listening to us, that they're also learning from us. It's a false assumption. The better question is, rather than asking, are people listening to us, we should be asking the question, are people learning from us? That's the question of catechesis. It doesn't matter if they're listening. It matters if they are learning. At the heart of this catechism question is active learning. Uh, In the traditional sense, it's it's a question with a response. So I've got a six and a four year old, Thomas and Bailey. And every first Sunday of the month, we invite all Storyline kids into our services. So we typically have Storyline kids and we have classrooms for them, kind of a Sunday school model or our middle school and high school students have their thing. But once a month, they're, they're all with us as we think about integration into the life of the church. So one of the things, this is, this is not in my notes, it's free, so you, pay, you get what you pay for, um, is we talk about the next generation and there's been so many articles the last few weeks about the challenging specifically teenage girls and there was one yesterday that teenage boys are facing. Um, and we, one of the concerns that we have as evangelicals I know is that we are seeing our kids leave the church at very, very fast rates. My plea to you as somebody again who, who kind of came into evangelicalism after that is this, it's not that our teenagers are leaving the church, it's that they never were a part of it. And by that, I'm not making it like an ecclesiological claim of, of presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm making more of the claim of they were in that room the whole time where you were in here the whole time. They left youth group. They didn't leave your church. They just never were a part of it. So I invite you to think about how do we invite them into the life of our church? But the reality is when we invite our storyline kids and my family sits right here in the front row, how much do you think they remember of dad's sermon? That's exactly right, brother. <laughs> The prayer of a righteous man. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't remember anything. However, my little four-year-old daughter, every Sunday, because she doesn't know what's happening, but she says, preach it up, daddy. I'm like, I will, baby, I will. But they don't remember anything. They don't know what's happening. They don't know what I'm talking about. It's not active for them. Our sermons are passive learning environments. It's me spending 10 to 20 hours a week on a carefully crafted sermon that I believe, and we'll get into this in a few minutes too, is this is God's ordained means to bring transformation. I believe in the proclaimed and preached word of God because you might listen to 400 sermons, but that 401st, God the Holy Spirit uses to either spark new life or to bring repentance and regeneration. God uses this very ordinary means of grace to transform people. I believe that. But my kids don't know that yet. They've not experienced that yet. But we also, maybe you've heard of the New City Catechism. 
They have a children's version of the New City Catechism that my wife and I do every single night with our kids. I say every single night, I'm a Baptist, three or four times a night. <laughs> my four-year-old little girl, we'll get down, I'll get on her, kind of on her level, look her in the eyes. Hey, sweet Bailey, what is our greatest hope in life and death? And with teeth kind of mismatched and not quite in yet, our greatest hope in life and death is that we are not our own. Bailey, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. Bailey, how many persons are there in God? God is three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She's four. She needs active learning. She needs to be invited into the process. She wants to be a part of the performance, not a part of the audience. So they're getting far more from catechism than from my preaching. And over the past several decades, many churches, I'm afraid, have adopted perhaps small group forms of ministry in place of catechetical forms of ministry. Now we have small groups at Storyline, and we had them at the village, but I wanna share a brief story with you about this. So the village, and again, I don't, I don't wanna assume that you guys know the story of the village, but it was about 126 people, a moderate Southern Baptist church. They call a young kind of fire and brimstone preacher, not really fire and brimstone, but he is fire, uh, preacher, Matt Chandler, and it grew by about 1,000 people a year, salvations, baptisms, and it got up to about 14,000 people in about 14 years. And about year five or six, as you are ministry practitioners, you know, do you think that was a busy church? Yeah. And they're trying to scale staff, they're trying to scale programs and discipleship, and it's where are all these people coming from, where are we going to put them? And they adopted, there was a book written by Eric Geiger, it's not a bad book, called Simple Church. The basic thesis of this book is simplify your model of ministry, cut all programs, cut cut everything except for home groups. Home groups are going to do everything for you. And all of a sudden, home group leaders are missionaries, they're training missionaries, they're pastoral counselors, they're doing premarital counseling, they, you know, they're, they're doing budget, I mean, they're just doing everything. And after five or six years, our people began to feel the load of that. This is before I was on staff there. But after they cut, they had a Jen Wilkin Bible study. You guys don't need to know who Jen is. She's a wonderful Bible teacher and a friend and colleague of mine. She had a thousand women in her Bible study and they cut it. It's too much, let's do simple church. Simple model of ministry. And our people began banging a gong by saying, will you train us? Will you teach us? We don't have access to Bible studies. We don't have access to learning, to growing, to catechism. So I wanna make a plea with you to create active learning environments in the life of your church. Because, and hear this as gently as I intend it, your sermons are not enough. That is not me making a theological claim about what a sermon does. I hope you heard me say that the sermon is is one of God's ordinary means of grace to transform his people. But if your people are immersed in other visions of the good life, a 35 minute sermon is not enough. Home groups are not enough. Active learning environments can help our people be re-catechized into Christian belief, doctrine and story. Let me tell you what an active learning environment is. There's pre-work, homework. You need to give books to your people to read, articles for them to read, curriculum for them to work through before you teach them about it. 
so there's, I call this the four-legged table of active learning. Pre-work, help them read an accessible Christian classic. We have our people read uh, portions of Calvin or Irenaeus or Athanasius on the Incarnation. Maybe you give them a curriculum. Help them read the Bible for themselves. You don't have to serve it on a silver platter every single week. Make them feel the dissonance. Number two, give them group discussion where they can learn together. Come to the church. Go talk about the article that we read. Here are some questions about it. Let's learn together. The first two steps here, pre-work and group discussion, I call them dissonance. And maybe if you don't hear anything, I've said this three or four times now. Hear all of it. Um, Dissonance is discipleship gold. That's, that's what you feel when you're like, ah, I want to grow. I, I need that muscle stimulated. Then it is, and you're stronger. Satisfaction is what kills discipleship. I'm satisfied. Everything's fine. Dissonance is discipleship gold. Then teach them. Bring them into a larger group setting and relieve some of that dissonance for them. And can I tell you what perhaps the most important leg is? We call it go and tell. When do you learn? When someone says it to you or when you have to say it to somebody else? I became a preacher so I could learn the Bible. You know what I mean? Like when you have to get up in front of somebody and say it, and it doesn't have to be go preach it. It might be go tell your five-year-old. Go tell your spouse. Go tell your neighbor. And I'll show you how, some of the ways that I think you can do this here in just a minute. But if we want active disciples, we must have active learning in the life of our churches. It does not matter if our people are listening to us if they're not learning from us. Question number three. The question we tend to ask is, what do disciples want? What do disciples want? The better question is, is what do disciples need? That's the question of catechesis. What's the scope of discipleship? What's the content that they, that they must have? The first is a consumeristic mindset. How are we going to create a curriculum or a, a, an environment where people are going to want to come to this? The second question is this catechetical, catechetical mindset. What needs to be taught? Perhaps in your church, uh, many, like many of the churches I've been at, there's kind of this, I call it a Frankenstein philosophy of ministry. It's like the adult Bible study fellowship that started 40 years ago, and you don't remember who taught it or what it's for is still there because you don't want to stop doing it. Anybody have it? Don't you have to raise your hand. Maybe your colleague is next to you and they teach it. You know, but over time, things get added, right? And you kind of have this philosophy of ministry at the end of it where you're like, ah, why are we doing this again? You've got 40 different learning environments or home groups or adult Bible study fellowships for 57 people. So like at the village, we had 14,000 people that were a part of our church at, at its height. They've since rolled off four of their campuses. And that first week that I got there, we had this kind of philosophy of ministry of all these kind of different things going on, small groups doing this, home groups doing that. And they'd started doing a few classes again. And there was 139 different kind of learning opportunities for, I think it was 228 people. Because nobody knew the why behind the what. Why am I supposed to go to that class? Why am I supposed to go be a part of this? Over time, ministries kind of add onto themselves like a bloated government and the job of a discipler, the job of a, of, a, of a catechetical teacher is to tell them what they need. I want to give you three categories, what I believe disciples need. They need Christian story, Christian belief, or Christian formation, or maybe other terms that we'd be more familiar with. They need the Bible, theology, and spiritual disciplines. Every disciple needs to be familiar with what the story of Scripture is, how to read the Bible, the basic foundations of the Christian faith, Nicaea, Chalcedon, the Apostles' Creed. They need to know what it means to fast, to pray, to share the gospel. These are the essentials, the non-negotiables of discipleship. 
The first I'll talk about is Christian story or Bible literacy. I don't have time to share the stats now, but you've seen the stats. You've seen the stats from Barna and from Ligonier. And the important thing for us to realize, guys, that's not the church down the street. That's our church. You might think that your church is a little bit better at Bible literacy than the other person's church. It's not. This is the scope. We have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, our people don't know the Bible. And since they don't know the Bible, they're living in other false stories. Here's just a few of the stories our people live in. Things like rationalism tells them whatever whatever they believe or is reasonable must be true. The story of pragmatism, the story that tells them whatever works must be true. Progressivism, the story that's going to tell our people, well, things are continually getting better. The story of perfectionism, this is the story that tells them they have to be good and perfect in order to be accepted. Our people are living in all of these kinds of stories. Why? Because they don't know the story of the Bible. They don't know it. They might know a little bit of it and pieces of it, but they can't place it all together. So maybe a question that I have for you is this. If I were to ask one of your random members, just pick one and say, I want you to tell me the story of the Bible. How would they do? Start in Genesis and end in Revelation. And don't think about the person that was the seminary prof or a former pastor. I just mean the the person that's trying to raise their family, work a nine to five job, or these days a nine to eight job. Could they tell me the story of the Bible? If not, what are we doing? I don't know what we're doing. Like, could they tell me that God created all things? The triune God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaks creation into existence. That at the height of his creation, he makes these image bearers who are meant to reign and rule and represent him to the ends of the earth to extend his glory over every part of creation. And instead of representing and reigning and ruling on God's behalf, they rebel and rival God's image and choose their own way like we heard last night. But God being rich in mercy covers their shame, covers their guilt, and tells them that one day the son of the woman is going to come to crush the head of the serpent. And then we see the pain and the brokenness of the world of of sin and lie, deceit, murder, and, 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 and family volatility in the story from Genesis 4 and 11. But God, being rich in mercy, comes to this man named Abraham. Abram, at the time, maybe one of the most unlikely figures that you would say, and God says, I'm going to recreate my world through you. I'm going to bring my kingdom back to this earth through you and through your offspring. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram and Sarai. God, being rich in mercy, says, your son one day is going to come to offer a sacrifice that will bless all the nations. He will offer himself to people, and through his offering, he will bring forgiveness of sin and my kingdom back to this earth. It looks like God's promise isn't true because God's people find themselves in exile, but God sends a deliverer named Moses, and Moses comes to God's people, and he delivers them out of Pharaoh's th- under, out of underneath Pharaoh's thumb. That he destroys his enemies, Satan, sin, and death. They march victoriously through the Red Sea, and he crushes his enemies behind him. They enter into this land and they're given the law. They're told to consecrate themselves, to set themselves aside, to be a holy nation of priests who one day inherit this land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They enter into this land partially destroying God's enemies and trying to set up government and judges and kings for themselves. But God being rich in mercy, despite all of their sinfulness, comes to David, the king that's a king after God's own heart, and says, one day your son is going to have an eternal kingdom. 
He's gonna build a temple for my name. His reign will have no end. He will live forever and his kingdom will have no end. So we're looking for the son of the woman, the son of Abram, the son of David. But again, God's people, much like they did in Genesis chapter three, fall away from God. And in their sinfulness, they rebel rather than representing God, they rival him and pursue their own ways. They end up in exile, much like Adam and Eve did in Babylon or Babel. But God, being rich in mercy, sends prophets to them, reminding them of God's judgment, but also reminding them of the hope of holiness that they have. And he's going to bring them back and purchase them back and liberate them once again through a second exodus. And they're going to inhabit this land. And eventually, Nehemiah and Ezra bring God's people back as new Moses figures. And they give them this land. And after they set up the temple and after they set up the wall, they still are wondering, where is God's presence? Is God ever going to come back and live with us? After 400 years of silence, the, Bible, the New Testament opens with the words that this is the book of new beginnings. This is the son of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, whom God is going to recreate all things for himself. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be the king who reigns and rules. But he's the kind of king that doesn't reign from a throne. He reigns from a cross as the son of Abraham, the son of David, who reigns and rules forever, the king of Israel. He's crucified, dead, and buried so that we might experience new life with God. He resurrects, triumphing over Satan, sin, and death forever. And after teaching about the kingdom of God, he ascends into heaven, where he now reigns and rules, and we can trust that his kingdom is real and coming because we see the Holy Spirit converting people and bringing about new life in dead soil. Local churches and us, we are God's apologetic that Jesus is reigning because you are now alive. And one day he's coming to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom forever. Your people cannot live in a story they don't know. And our people don't know the story. That's why they're falling for other political visions or romantic visions of the good life, because they don't know the story. It doesn't matter if they can get up here and do this, but it also doesn't matter if I do it. It doesn't matter if you do it. It matters if they know it. Have they learned it? It doesn't matter if they listen to me do it, but ultimately catechism don't miss this. To catechize is to restore a person by restoring a person. To catechize is to restore a person by restoring a person. I've got to move quickly through these next ones. So Christian story. Second Christian doctrine, your people need to know the basics of the faith. The Apostles' Creed, Chalcedon, Nicaea. Kevin Van Hooser says it this way. Christians learn doctrine in order to participate more deeply, passionately, and truthfully in the drama of redemption. Our people cannot be disciples of Christ without loving the doctrines that Christ loves. Our peoples cannot be disciples of Christ without loving the doctrines that are given to us in his word. Christian story, Christian belief, finally Christian formation. We need a new vision of catechism that doesn't just include questions and answers, but also rhythms and practices inviting people to inhabit and embody a world that matches the catechism they're learning through perhaps question and answer. Moral formation that helps guide our love and desires towards the one who made us. So we're asking the questions, where discipleship must happen, 
What they need is the last question we asked. They need story, belief, and formation. Fourth question, this one will go quicker. How do we keep disciples? Is the question we typically ask. How do we keep them? How do we keep them at our church? I wanna invite you to ask a better question. How do we grow disciples? How do we grow? How do we transform? How do we sanctify? In educational terms, this is called sequence. How do you help people take the next step in their walk with Jesus and their faith? Once you've determined the scope of story, belief, and formation, you determine the sequence. This is, let me give you a basic example. Like, a, like an educational system would say, every single person needs to know math, except for me. Apparently, I never learned it. So I'm a Trinitarian scholar. Um, but like, for example, my, my, my uh, first grader, Thomas, right now he's learning addition and subtraction and he's learning how to do kind of larger numbers. But in four or five years, is he, if he's still doing that kind of math, has he grown? No. So he's gonna start learning multiplication and division or trigonometry and calculus because he's going to take the next steps of growth. The same thing could be true for if you work out, maybe you run or you lift weights. If you keep running at the same pace, do you get faster? No, you have to push, you have to challenge the muscles. And I want to argue the same thing needs to be true in catechesis or in teaching. You need to have environments in your local church where you're teaching people past an eighth grade reading level because if you're only teaching at an eighth grade reading level, you're going to have a bunch of eighth grade level disciples. And all God's people said, amen, right? So there's a sense of if we're not offering them more steps of growth, Come to this Christian doctrine class that we teach at an eighth grade reading level, but after that, we're going to have a seminar on Bavik. Come to this class where we're going to tell you the basics of the story of the Bible, but then come to the next environment where we're going to tell you the different ways that we put the story of the Bible together. Maybe, a, maybe the best way I can ask it is this, going back to my story. Do you have a model of ministry that helps a person move from pagan to pastor? Could you do it all in your church? If not, I would argue, I'm not sure we're called to pastoral ministry. The ultimate art of pastoral ministry is recreating yourself, reproducing yourself. Are you offloading, delegating one of your primary tasks? So there's a Starbucks really close to our church, and I often go by it and I pray that the next pastor of Storyline is a non-Christian sitting in that Starbucks that will have the gospel shared with him indiscriminately by maybe somebody like a Nate Miller. Maybe he's gonna share the four spiritual laws and he's gonna come to the Lord, he's gonna come to our church and over the next 20, 25 years we develop them into a pastor. It'd be wonderful if we went to Southern or Trinity or Fuller or wherever, but what if we had a model of ministry that says you don't have to leave the church in order to grow. The last thing I want to say is this. This one should be simple. The, the fifth catechetical question that we typically ask is, are we inviting God into what we are doing? Or are we inviting disciples into what God is doing? Are we inviting God into what we are doing? Again, this is a question we ask, especially with the modern self at the center of reality. But finally, I just want to say, I think the better question is, are we inviting disciples into what God is doing? Ultimately, those first questions don't matter if we don't get this one right. One of my favorite passages that I, I wish I had some more time to talk about, but I've got to wrap up here in about five minutes, is Habakkuk 2.14. I was sitting at Lake, Powell, or, uh, Lake Tahoe when I read that passage once, and Lake Tahoe is one of the deepest bodies of water, and uh, 
Habakkuk 2.14 goes something like this. I don't have it written here, but it's basically one day the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth the same way water covers the sea. I remember sitting at Lake Tahoe thinking to myself, what does that even mean? For water to cover the sea. It's like the water is the sea. It's the same thing. It's almost like saying one day heaven and earth will be one. Do your people want that? Because they can't if you don't. Like, are you willing to follow God wherever he leads, even in catechism? At the heart of catechism is centering all of reality on the triune God, centering all of reality on the redemption that's available only in Jesus, the ongoing powerful activity of the Spirit, the future and current hope that we have. Are you inviting your people to reframe all of their reality, not to invite God into their lives, but to say that God is inviting you to follow him wherever he leads? I could be getting this quote wrong. Again, I don't have it written down. I believe it was Dallas Willard who said, the kingdom of God ultimately is finding, about, finding out what God is doing and following him there. Something along those lines. I'm not sure that many of our people know how to do that. I'm not sure that many of our people believe that we want that. But what if your church had a vision of saying, one day, the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth the same way water covers the sea. God, would you start here and would you start now? We start with our church. We start with me. I want the glory of the knowledge of God to cover my life, to cover this church. Stop playing these evangelical games and follow Jesus wherever he leads. Here's what I want to do for the remaining four or five minutes and we'll have some time for some q and I just want to give you some really simple next steps. If you want to think about catechism in the life of your church, these are coming out of those questions, kind of some, some simplified ways to answer those questions. Five next steps. First, recover the primacy of the local church in discipleship. That's a simple one. And so like, I almost want, will you guys just look at me for a second? I just need you to hear this. What you do matters. What you do matters a lot. And it's time for you to reclaim the primary role that God has given you and your church in the life of your members, in the life of your community to say, we are an embassy of the kingdom of God, heralding and proclaiming the glory of Jesus to anybody who will listen. What you do is not optional. It's essential in the kingdom of God. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back, brothers and sisters. You and your church was made for moments just like this. Teach them. Develop them, grow them. Two, renew our emphasis on active learning environments in the church. I talked about that. Renew our emphasis on active learning environments. This, again, I, I love your sermons. I'm sure they're wonderful. Community groups can be great, but ultimately active learning environments are what we need in this hour. Invite people into discipleship. Number three, retrieve, but maybe even more so, reimagine catechesis and teaching. Of course, we have so many catechisms that we can go back to and we should retrieve those catechisms. They have distinctively Christian truth for us that should be handed down from the ages of the faith once delivered for the saints. Use them, develop them. Help your people be aware of how the history of doctrine has, has come to us and developed over time. But also, feel invited into this reimagination of, of catechism. You might be familiar with things like the Bible Project or like I've said, New City Catechisms. These are new ways of helping catechize people into story, belief, and formation. It's not maybe a matter of cut and paste, it's a matter of reimagination. Maybe you'll leapfrog what they're doing one day. Fourth, 
I want you to remember that transformation, or we could say sanctification or holiness, that's the title of this lecture, is the goal of discipleship. Conversion is not the touchdown in the Christian life, it's simply the beginning. And amen, when God converts people and we see dead people walk in new life, we should be sharing the gospel indiscriminately with people asking that God would take dead people and make them alive, but we also must ask that God would take alive people and now make them holy, glorified, set apart for himself. Conversion is simply the beginning of walking with Jesus, not the end of walking with Jesus. Number five, and this is simple, and my ask for this is probably more for you than for your people, because they won't have it if you don't have it. Recapture a God-centered vision of all things. Doesn't matter what catechism you do, what teaching you do, if the presence of God isn't at the center of it. If the joy that's found only in Jesus and in his spirit is it. In the passage that we looked at earlier at the very beginning of my, my talk, Moses continually reminds us of the character of God and the character of his people. Be holy for I am holy. Consecrate yourselves, your mind, and I am holy. Seven times in the passages that we didn't read, God says, I am the Lord. That's the beginning of catechism. Can I pray for us? Father, thank you for your servants and saints, and thank you for the opportunity to be with them. I pray that my brothers and sisters would be encouraged, not just through this talk, but over the course of the week, as they have conversations and minister one to another and develop relationships and friendships, our ask is that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us, that you would sanctify us. I mean, God, we're, we're under no illusion that this is a game. If there is sin here, unrepentant sin, hidden sin, addictions, fear and shame, help us to bring those things into the presence of Jesus. Consecrate a people for yourself. I pray for the the whole community of EFCA, would you continue to make this denomination a place where light is shining in darkness? We ask it in Christ's matchless name, amen.